Hey everyone, welcome in to Pattern Still Stories. I'm your host, Klaus, and today we're going to be talking about plant consciousness. With me today, as always, is my co-host, Garrett. What's up, man? What's up, dude? Not much. I was just looking over the IG report uh, from the DoD IG that came out today, and there's a bunch of interesting stuff in there. Also, uh, Sean Kirkpatrick, the director, well, former director of Arrow, came out with an opinion piece in Scientific American. <laughs> it was really hard to read. It basically felt like someone took one of Stephen Greenstreet's videos and ran it through ChatGPT and told it to write an article. They actually linked to Stephen Greenstreet's video in the article. In the article, Kirkpatrick essentially just repeats the same talking points that Stephen Greenstreet put in his videos. Greenstreet's a noted skeptic and all-around kind of dickhead. He used to be, um, I guess, a quote-unquote believer. He had a show with Nick Pope on his YouTube channel called, what was it, The Basement Office? I think you used to watch that, right? I've watched all the episodes of Basement Office, unfortunately, because I wanted to be at least accurate in my critique of this guy if I'm going to be critical of him because I feel like people are a little unfair to him sometimes. But like some of this shit is deserved. He is a troll. I don't know. I, I like if you really watch his timeline, like he goes after people. Like it's his job, right? And the fact that Kirkpatrick used his video, which is basically a hit piece on all the people pushing for, you know, disclosure is kind of like really concerning and bizarre. And uh, I was kind of thinking about this too, in terms of Sean Kirkpatrick and his position at Arrow. Uh, so Arrow is something that the DOD definitely did not want to have to deal with, like setting up an office there, actually looking into UAP, essentially investigating itself is what Arrow was set up to do for the DOD. And it's not something they would want to succeed. You know, they had to address the will of Congress and fulfill it. Arrow itself, it was basically calling out the DOD for saying that they didn't have proper procedures in place to take in reports of UFOs or any sort of public-facing, at least, uh, mechanism to study these things and provide actual answers to the American people. So the fact that Kirkpatrick was elected to be the director. I'm not sure how much of an input that Senator Gillibrand had in that because she led that effort. But um, either way, the DOD put him there for a reason. And it probably was a good reason. And it probably was not where Kirkpatrick wanted to go. I mean, there's been reports of him not getting along with coworkers in the past. And uh, something tells me that him being there wasn't a reward. It was, it was kind of a uh, almost a punishment in my opinion. I agree. Yeah, they just didn't want to put this office together. And I think he was the right guy who was kind of seemed disgruntled, honestly, every time he talked to the press, was like super dismissive and just didn't really seem to want to even address anything that anyone asked him. And then the picture came out the other day as well of uh, him at the Hayden Center for an event they did a few months ago. He was essentially followed around by the Pentagon press office, you know, representative uh, Susan Gao. And she looked like she was wearing ska kid clothes, checkered pants and all this weird shit. You know that uh, meme of Steve Buscemi where he's holding a skateboard and he has like a backwards hat? Oh, he's like, hello, fellow children. Exactly. <laughs> it felt like that. Like she was trying to disguise herself from being like some sort of psyop agent for the army following around Sean Kirkpatrick. 
in his suit and tie. It's so bizarre. Do you remember, this is going to sound off topic, but I swear it makes sense in my head. Do you remember back in, I think it was like mid-2022, when those guys, I think Scott Bray and Ronald Moultrie (laughs) held their press conference and like, it was literally embarrassing how little they were willing to share. And like, after that, they installed Arrow and we had Kirkpatrick and like a taste of what he was like and how he felt about this topic. When Kirkpatrick was talking about in in this recent article, if you ever follow guys like Green Street, they constantly call this topic wacky and use terms like that. Spooky. That make it seem, yeah, spooky. Make it sound like anyone who puts any interest towards topics of paranormal or ufos that person is automatically ridiculous and they make it to where they're like a true believer is what they want to call them or like people that they're going to believe no matter what and they're going to trick the public into believing that there's something to this in order to trick them into getting money and trick congress and like they're just pulling one over on them and some rogue little group is tricking and they're all fanatics and they're tricking Congress. And uh, in my opinion, this view is one of the dumbest conspiracy theory. Those people are conspiracy theorists because if you know anything about anything, a lot of these people that have been associating with the guys we're talking about on this podcast, dude, Tom DeLonge is one. Dave Fravor mentioned Tom DeLonge and his company under oath when he was like in front of Congress. These people that are these big critics and like like to talk shit, they ain't under oath. And a lot of the things that they're asking for, if people came forward and shared these things, they would go to jail or they would be violating some. And they know that. Uh, yeah. And it's so crazy to me how they dance on that. Like, they know that this person can't truly come forward and defend themselves. I just think it's disgusting. It drives me nuts. I worry for these people because at the end of the day, these the the conspiracy theorists are playing it off like it's some fantasy bullshit and there's going to be no real-world repercussions to it. They're accusing people that, like, served our country of the worst of the worst, and they're not given a fair opportunity to defend themselves. We all know that um, the uh, Dead Horse of Alaska UAP was just Travis Taylor shooting off rockets on the coast of Alaska. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah, man, it's bizarre. And, you know, and then you wonder why more whistleblowers don't come forward. Well, first of all, they don't have enough protections legally. They go to jail, basically. Lives are ruined and they have families and shit. You know, to have this on top of it is just like, it's hard to feel like you have, like people have your back. Because these people are literally online all fucking day. Again, it's like it's their job almost. You know, I'm not saying, I'm just, I'm just saying. Yeah, but if you look at these people's timelines, 99 to 100% of it is in out so much time. It's yeah. spent just like any thread where an individual that they don't like is mentioned. They are in there duking it out with Bobby John 155 four or five <laughs> they're fucking messaging them and then the other person dolphins fan one five nine eight eight five four they're fucking messaging them and they're trying to change their opinion and like dude they're doing this shit all day so either yeah. the, i don't know what the fuck they do or maybe they just start sitting on some fucking trust fund or like 
what? But goddamn, it must be nice <laughs> to just like kick it and just talk shit to people all day. Why do you yeah. think they're doing that shit, dude? I think some of those people are genuine in that they're just like determined that it's all one big conspiracy and they're going to figure it out. There's other people where you know they're just trying to trick people. Yeah, now there's like certain accounts that have serious money behind them promoting Greenwald and all them, which is really disturbing. And I don't really want to get into that right now because it's uh, pretty fresh and um, a little scary, honestly. Yeah, it's something to definitely keep an eye on. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if more of this stuff kind of gets exposed in the near future. Like uh, like this Wikipedia thing that happened where my friend Rob Rob Heatherly, he was on Disclosure Tonight, which was another another show. And he's close with, with Elizondo. Um, he was going through the Wikipedia edit history of a lot of you know the people who are pushing Disclosure forward, like Gary Nolan, Ross Colthart, obviously. Lou, George Knapp, Corbell. You look at these Wikipedia edits and it's it's literally just pretty much defamation. So there's this group called uh, Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia. They recruit people uh, from all around the world at skeptic conventions. And th- there's this huge skeptic like community that I was totally unaware of before all this stuff was exposed. Yeah, they're recruited, basically given a link to a Facebook chat they call the secret cabal. I guess they're like making fun of conspiracy theorists or whatever. Yeah. And then they go in and they do like a four month long training exercise about how to promote skepticism on Wikipedia and how to edit articles, go right up to the line of the rules of Wikipedia. And a lot of these people are in administrative roles on Wikipedia. And um, I know a lot of people say, like, never use Wikipedia, but it's like, okay, it's still the first or second result when you search someone's name is Wikipedia. Anyone who's even casually curious about UFOs or anything that might be weird, if they search someone who's involved in that subject, they're going to hit the link to Wikipedia. It's a pretty big problem when you have an organized group of people who are recruiting others and sending them through training to promote a skeptical viewpoint it's being abused on on this you know highly used website for uh, information like general information on people you know they're adding things like uh instead of you know studying ufos they're writing promoting conspiracies of ufos and just like really mean shit and it's uh it's really disappointing to go through and look at some of those edits if you want to see like the kind of egregious organized uh basically character assassination that's been going on on Wikipedia for a very long time now. They were actually reprimanded about a year ago and sanctioned like this group. And the leader of this wrote an article in Skeptical Inquirer uh, saying that we beat the system, essentially. They wanted us to break up our private, you know, off Wikipedia organizing, but they couldn't make us. So we're still here and we're stronger than ever. You look at the comments they make in there, and it's so sarcastic, talking about space aliens. And then the leader of this group is actually a fellow of um, Center for Skeptical Inquiry, who actually publishes the Skeptical Inquirer. So she's a fellow of this organization that includes Mick West, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye. So, so these are all like, <laughs> yeah, dude, it's like this huge skeptic, I guess, community. And this one little section of it is literally created to recruit people to edit wikipedia what the fuck it's nuts they hold yeah they hold admin positions and get to like majority rules so they're all on there as the majority it's wild 
And they also recruit people internationally who read different languages. So those things are edited in every single language. I had no idea this level of organization. I like to have a solution, but like, what is know. the solution there? Like Wikipedia kind of seems like the fucking Wild West yeah. to a degree, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is everyone's like, everyone knows this happens. It's like, I didn't. So yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm glad the, I know now. I guess shining a light on it is really the only thing you can do at this point. Let them know that you're watching. They think they're like in the shadows and not anymore. Thanks to Rob Heatherly. I've already seen people try to downplay it. Oh, yeah. And it's... It, all of those takes have fallen flat. Like people, I've been pretty proud of the community. If I'm if I'm going to use that phrase, like people were going hard the other day when this news started coming out about this Wikipedia. I thought that you said it really well. It's like at the end of the day, regardless of what people say, like, oh, well, in college, you know that you can't use Wikipedia as a source. Like, I heard that as one of the arguments for why a person can't change the information about why their peer-reviewed paper shouldn't be included in their, like, body of work. The, the thing was, was, like, at the end of the day, when you pull out your phone and you hit uh, Safari or Google Chrome or whatever, and you hit the search bar and you type in... Kennedy Space Center, enter, and you see that first or second result comes up and you have all that information, like, that matters. And that's the majority of the information people are getting is like these quick little hits of just like, all right, what's the first or second result that comes up? Bah, I'm going to hit that. Okay, what do we got there? And like, Wikipedia, whether you like it or not, personally, always is top three if not the first thing that comes up, you know, like how weak does your argument have to be? You have to edit someone's Wikipedia to <laughs> fucking God damn. That's so crazy to me. And uh, speaking of like this whole organized skeptic thing. Yeah. Sean Kirkpatrick. It's so weird how he went on this um, tirade or not really tirade, but he did a podcast and wrote an op-ed and people were kind of like, why is he doing this now? Like, what's he up to where he feels like he has to go out and get in front of this stuff or get in front of something that is about to come out? And it turns out that the uh, DOD Inspector General report on UAP came out today. And we're going to go over that a little bit. Yeah, the unclassified summary of the evaluation of the DOD's actions regarding unidentified anomalous phenomena. And I believe this is potentially the IG investigation kicked off by Lou Elizondo. They kind of paint it in a way that isn't really that critical, and they kind of have to do that to not make the defense establishment look like complete assholes. But when you read between the lines of this thing, it's pretty clear that there was zero, well, maybe not zero, but like very inadequate reporting requirements and coordination between different agencies and uh, departments of the DOD in their research, in their reporting, and in their understanding, most of all, of uh, the UFO issue. So it starts off kind of summarizing, you know, the whole UFO issue in, in the eyes of, of the Department of Defense. Uh, they say the first official UAP-focused activities occurred in December 1947, when the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff established Project Sign. And they go through each of the you know, different projects the DOD set up. Uh, Blue Book, obviously, you know, up to present day. And actually, here's an interesting part of this, is they say the DOD did not officially look at UAP again 
until mid-2000, when select members of Congress initiated and funded a program to study UAP called the Advanced Aerospace Weapon Systems Applications Program under the DIA. So in this IG report, they are saying that OSAP was a UAP program. That's something Green Street and all those assholes have been saying was not a UAP program. They're saying it, you know, they're ghost hunters and they're that kind of shit, like setting traps for werewolves and I don't know, all this stupid shit. And uh, in the IG report, they're saying OSAP was a UFO program. So that is pretty much uh, put to bed with this. That's pretty wild. That is wild. I keep, I'm reading the sentence and uh, I'm combing through it right now. Uh, and the interesting thing is it says the DOD did not officially look. So that's a nice little qualifier because they wouldn't have to put that qualifier in there, I don't think, unless the classified DODIG report was uh, had a little more stuff in there. I heard our government takes all sorts of things very seriously that they would never let the public know about. Remember listening to the uh, Chris Bledsoe interview? That right there. To, or the uh, just recently, a good example, the Diana Pasolka on Joe Rogan and her talking about this experience. She d- explains an American Cosmic with Gary Nolan. There, there's a whole other world. The, the public doesn't even get to know about it. Do you remember that? Like the AOI MSG, where it was like the dumbest grouping of letters that were the hardest to say, totally on purpose, obviously. Like no one on the news could say it correctly. It was just such a <laughs> clear uh, evidence that they were trying to, you know, make a joke out of this and make it hard yeah. for people to even say the name of the goddamn program. It's wild. It's too long. <laughs> and dude, I re- they just like to fuck with us. I know. That's it. At the end of the day, like it's not UFO anymore. It's UAP, and they're <laughs> anomalous. Or they're, they're not anomalous. They're aerial. We had yeah. that wrong, or it's aerospace, actually. And then you're like, what What are you guys, what yeah. is going on right now? So the one thing that they called out is not definitely sufficiently being coordinated and that would have the most impact on trying to figure out what these things are, who might have the most data to help do that, are called uh, Military Department Counterintelligence Organizations, or MDCOs. So that includes Army Counterintelligence, Naval Criminal Investigative Service, and the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, Doty's old uh, old employer. Oh, God. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is where it gets interesting. They recommend that the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, so that's Elizondo's old office. It's where he resigned from when he was trying to get the uh, UAP issue, I guess, in front of the, the president. And that's also what Arrow was created under. I remember Elizondo going on about that, where he was saying this is like uh, the fox guarding the hen house, basically. It says the undersecretary also commented that the report describes Arrow as having been, quote, operational at the time of its establishment, when in fact the office was not at initial operational capability. Exactly. They weren't even able to investigate properly if they wanted to? Is that what that means? Like, what does that mean when you read that? Well, read the next sentence. The undersecretary stated that ARO will achieve full operational capability using the resources provided in the future year defense plan beginning in fiscal year 2024. Yep. So Sean Kirkpatrick, for all his bitching and moaning, his office wasn't even under full operational capability. (laughs) The whole time he was there, 
they didn't have the full resources they needed. And then it says they will beginning in fiscal year 2024. So he left, I guess, when was it? December. Now he's going on this like tour of podcasts and writing op-eds and shit and just like being a complete dickhead citing, citing Stephen Greenstreet's videos. He didn't even have everything he needed to do the job he was put in there to do. It makes you wonder, again, what, what is he doing? Was he put in there to be okay with not having full capability or like operational capability? Did he not ask Gillibrand or anyone else for that capability? I mean, that seems like a really, really bad excuse for not doing the job that he was put there to do. And that's probably on purpose, honestly. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Just being honest, like, think about it, dude. I wonder what he's doing now. He's probably drinking a Mai Tai. If you're shameless, he killed it. He got everybody good and pissed off, left, and now he's just working for private industry. Patel. Patel. Wonder what they know. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. Uh, And you know what's funny too is like in this, if you scroll down in this document, they they do Secretary of the Army comments, Secretary of the Air Force comments, Secretary of the Navy comments. And they're all very brief, like they did not respond or they did not issue a response. Or there's like little to none. Well, look at who didn't provide comment. The joint staff didn't seem to provide comment. The Secretary of the Air Force didn't seem to provide comment. That's it. Fuck. I wonder who has (laughs) a lot of this information you know like when does the air force come into this is christopher mellon on joe rogan he asked him explicitly he was like where would you if you were president whose door would you go knocking on or where would you look and mellon's response i think he says uh i would look at the agency which i assume would be the cia the central intelligence agency and then he he also said the air force was another place and then they also talked a lot about the department of energy I wonder, like, the closer we get to understanding some of this, I feel like they're going to just get to a point where they're going to be like, all right, well, this is, uh, what do they call it, proprietary information. And this is something that we, the government, doesn't officially know. Well, that's another thing. When we, we said before, it basically goes up to the end of Project Blue Book between 1952 and 1969. And then they did not officially look at UAP again until OSAP. You know what happened there <laughs> when they say they don't officially look. That's probably when it moved to private industry under Nixon. Like, uh, I think Coltar said that as well as Sheehan. That would make sense if the DOD, like the government, didn't officially look at it after 1969. Exactly lines up with, um, you know, moving it to private industry at that point. Yeah, because Nixon was president from 69 to 74, it says, when I Googled it. When you Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, for real, dude. It is fucking Wikipedia. That just tells us right there. Oh, God. Yeah, man. It's uh, just for basic shit, you know? It's uh, anyway. Yeah, dude. And his middle name was Millhouse. There you go. What do you think the most fucked up one was? I heard that there were some where people were trying to edit where they lived and they wouldn't even let them do that. Yeah, that was Elizondo. Didn't he have a passport? Yeah, they said he was born in Miami. <laughs> where was he born? In Texas. <laughs> they wouldn't let him change it? No, he he went in and changed it and they changed it. They reverted the change. Like just stupid stuff. That's like, fucking creepy. Yeah. It's so weird. The fact that like this shady ass group has control over what people know about 
other people's. <laughs> the other annoying thing is this Gorilla Skeptics group goes in and edits Skeptics pages and makes them like all nice and tidy and like sound awesome. Yeah, I think Matt Ford on his show with Rob Heatherly, they went and they were basically kept repeating like, go look at Mick West's Wikipedia page and then look at David Grush's Wikipedia page and you'll see exactly what we're talking about, about how these, how these people are framed and their credentials and their claims. And yeah, the other problem with it is people do go to Wikipedia, but but me personally, like I'll go to the sources of the page. I, like I won't just take what the page says for granted. If it's something you know that's very serious, I'll go look at the primary source. And they're they're taking out these primary sources when they're editing the pages. You know, they're using like Jason Colavito as a primary source. <laughs> what really? Most of the paranormal, well, not most, but a lot of the paranormal have have little snippets from Colavito's blog that are put in there by this group. And it's <laughs> the arguments are so horrible. But apparently, his blog is considered an acceptable source that they can use anytime. So if they wanted to coordinate with like Colavito and be like, hey, write an article about, I don't know, George Knapp that totally blasts him so we can use it in a Wikipedia article. That's the thing is that there are outside sources. And I, I was kind of hinting at this when I, I think I said, um, all you have to do to like, completely change public opinion is fund a blog or uh, provide resources for a blog, a skeptical blog that people can cite. Doesn't matter how many people read the goddamn thing. It can be cited in Wikipedia articles or op-eds like Sean Kirkpatrick. You can put out a blog post about how awful some UFO people are, and then nobody has to read it. But if it's an acceptable source for Wikipedia, they could just jam it in there. It could get no attention whatsoever, but it can still be put into Wikipedia. That's another really, really awful kind of manipulation of information. Fuck yeah, dude. You're changing what people get to see or what they get to learn. Like, I hate that shit, dude. I love debate, but this isn't like that. This isn't debate at all. This is just like changing what the audience gets to fucking even read. They're not saying like, ghosts are real and like this isn't what they're fucking changing like they're trying to pretend they are they're saying that like they can't put basic information about who they are and what their jobs were and the research they've done they're making it sound like they were correcting the record any person that was associated with these types of programs especially the people that aren't allowed to talk about them they make them all seem ridiculous okay so, is there anything else that happened? This was our last show. Yeah. I heard that NASA delayed moon missions. Do you know anything on that? Yeah. The moon hates us, I guess. <laughs> there always seems to be something that keeps us from doing that, even though we did it decades ago. It's hard to uh, kind of wrap my head around that. <laughs> like, why, why is it so hard to go to the moon? I mean, I'm sure there are like actual scientific reasons why, and I know there are, but... um. You'd think uh, decades after we landed, it, it would be pretty easy at this point, you know, considering the technology we have. And unless we have gone back and, uh, you know, it's uh, classified. Listen to Bob Bigelow on Jeffrey Mishlove. Oh, the hydrogen. We're going. We're going. Yeah. There's true. no way we're not going. This is a billionaire. Like, this should be front page news. There's a billionaire sitting in a chair explaining to another PhD that... He ran an aerospace program. Yeah, yeah. Bigelow Aerospace. Like, our astronauts are floating around in space in his equipment. Yep. Not sketch. Not a sham. None of that. Real, real as can be. 
And people are like, yeah, well, he's crazy. That's made up. <clears throat> Follow the money is what I say. Like, it, it sounded like he thought the moon was very rich of resources that we're going to be using in the future and that it's going to become something that is going to have like military implications as well as who controls the moon. He seemed like kind of concerned. We needed to like get into gear is to like take this type of thing seriously, as bizarre as it sounds. Uh, speaking of that and Pasolka's interview, did you hear what she said about crash retrievals in space? It, to me, it sounded like so much more expansive than the way we're picturing it. This was the quote. Most likely there are, if there's a crash retrieval part, you know, crash retrievals here on Earth, perhaps there are in space as well. Yeah, man, you want to talk about plants? Telepathic plants? Yes. I think this is a pivotal part of studying and understanding psychic phenomena is understanding plants, including this Baxter guy who... I'm very fascinated with. And I feel like you would give a better explanation of who this guy is than me. He's a pretty famous guy, right? But controversial. I've heard that this is a controversial study. We'll see. Oh, I'm on team living organism, dude. We were just talking about the happening. Did you watch it? No. <laughs> dude, I'm, dude, if don't feel bad. Week, I did not I worked, feel bad. I worked all week and was like sick, dude. Well, you work with plants. Make me feel bad. I do work with plants. That's a good point. <laughs> One day, you'll find out. So the thing that popularized this uh, Cleve Baxter guy who um, did these plant consciousness experiments was a 1973 book called uh, The Secret Life of Plants. And they talk about this guy Baxter, who was a polygraph expert for the CIA, uh, just randomly decided to hook up galvanometer, I guess it's called, to um, to the leaf of a houseplant that he just kept in his office uh, just to see what would happen, I guess. And uh, so basically he he found that like when he imagined the plant being set on fire, that the polygraph machine would go nuts and register like a surge of electrical activity, you know, signaling that the plant was feeling stress. So the authors of this book ask, uh, could, could the plant have been reading his mind? So this is where a lot of the idea of plant consciousness, you know, whatever that means, comes from, where they can feel stress and respond to it in a way that humans would. It can be detected through, you know, these polygraph machines. So there's an article on this book that I found in The New Yorker that goes through it and kind of chases down the science of it. So this thing is called the Baxter Effect. Bunch of scientists legitimate plant scientists tried to reproduce it and they, they weren't able to. It was kind of like up in the air whether or not you know, plants could actually respond to stress stimulation. Uh, so proponents of this idea of the Baxter effects argue that the plant scientists who actually want to study this kind of thing are like self-censoring and not putting anything out. I'm going to read this part because it's saying, the quotation about self-censorship appeared in a controversial 2006 article in Trends in Plant Science proposing a new field of inquiry that the authors, perhaps somewhat recklessly, elected to call plant neurobiology. Oh, it's brutal. <laughs> people, people are not going to like that. Um, <laughs> the, six, the six authors argue that the sophisticated behaviors observed in plants cannot at present be completely explained by familiar genetic and biochemical mechanisms. Plants are able to sense and optimally respond to so many environmental variables that there may exist some brain-like information processing system to integrate the data and coordinate a plant's behavioral response. The authors pointed out that electrical 
and chemical signaling systems have been identified in plants, which are homologous to those found in the nervous systems of animals. They also noted that neurotransmitters such as serotonin, dopamine, and glutamate have been found in plants, though their role remains unclear. Hence the need for plant neurobiology, a new field aimed at understanding how plants perceive their circumstances and respond to environmental input in an integrated fashion. The article argued that plants exhibit intelligence, defined by the authors as an intrinsic ability to process information from both abiotic and biotic stimuli that allows optimal decisions about future activities in a given environment. You know what initially spurred me to like ask you about this Baxter guy months and months ago? It was looking through all these like declassified remote viewing documents. One of these like many, many documents, there has to be thousands at this point. Like when you talk about bureaucracies, like even this remote viewing thing seems like it was like, also some sort of bureaucracy because a lot of these documents are just like your meeting is approved for tuesday signed <laughs> all right Dude, like that is like 15 of the 17 documents and there's like, a list going of, through uh, these you know papers. what i'm saying though a lot of them are just like has nothing to do with remote viewing it's just like random memos and stuff yeah, here's but, the like, subcontractor's resume <laughs> pretty much enjoy dude, but but this one in particular dude i had sent you i think in like june or may and it's this guy lieutenant colonel busby who claims to be a project manager for inscom which inscom is intelligence security command for the army and it's project center lane it's busby introducing his former operations officer fred atwater who, if you like, are familiar with these remote viewing programs, Atwater, I think his name's Skip Atwater. He was like a pretty prominent guy, especially leading into the years like in the 90s. He was like one of the guys that was uh, overseeing the operations of these programs. Well, anyways, they're talking about different techniques and uh, methods they use in these programs. They're talking about psychoenergetics. It says psychoenergetics are the processes by which an individual may psychically interact with objects, locations, organisms, or events. This includes such disciplines as psychokinesis, remote viewing, and remote communications. As you recall, sir, General Stubblebine discussed one form of remote communications with you. This was the, quote, Baxter effect on blood cells where... Through the use of psychogalvanic measurement, blood cells isolated from a donor appear to reveal the psychological state of the donor. The U.S. government, to include the Department of Defense, has been involved in examining potential uses of psychoenergetics since the early 1970s. Activities included the application of remote viewing as an intelligence-gathering tool by the Central Intelligence Agency, threat analysis by the Defense Intelligence Agency, and research and development efforts by U.S. Army DARCOM elements. And then he goes on to explain other methods. But that in this particular document, they mention what they refer to as the Baxter effect. And it struck me as so odd how they were talking about it so matter-of-factly. There's some sort of relationship I don't know how to explain it because I'm I don't think I'm smart enough or qualified enough to explain it, but it sounds like it sounds like quantum entanglement. It's a weird one. 
good documents out there, dude. They're fun. They basically said that, like, if you donate blood the and the other person, like, who gets your blood, like, if you have a bad day, they're going to have a bad, bad day. <laughs> their, cells are, their cells are going to have a bad day. Who says that? That's a thing? <laughs> you just read it. <laughs> well, I mean... I didn't know. I you said you it. Said like that you said the cells. I thought you were telling me. No, I didn't know, dude. So my Just understanding. <laughs> so my understanding is that, like, I believe that. I believe that there's something to that. What it says in that document, it might be baloney, and maybe they wrote that to send someone down a weird rabbit hole. And like, th- there's all sorts of reasons we can speculate, but I feel like that particular. Thing, the Baxter effect, I think that that is something. The journalist talks to more recent plant scientists who are kind of exploring this. So um, so he writes, No one I spoke to in the loose interdisciplinary group of scientists working on plant intelligence claims that plants have telekinetic powers or feel emotions. This, this sounds like a like a invisible college for like plant <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> um nor does anyone believe that we will locate a walnut-shaped organ somewhere in plants which processes sensory data and directs plant behavior. More likely, in the scientist's view, intelligence in plants resembles that exhibited in insect colonies, where it is thought to be an emergent property of a great many mindless individuals organized in a network. Much of the research on plant intelligence has been inspired by the new science of networks, distributed computing, and swarm behavior which has demonstrated some of the ways in which remarkably brainy behavior can emerge in the absence of actual brains. If you are a plant, having a brain is not an advantage. Stefano Mancuso points out, Mancuso is perhaps the field's most impassioned spokesman for the plant point of view. When I visited him earlier this year, he told me that his conviction that humans grossly underestimate plants has its origins in a science fiction story he remembers reading as a teenager. A race of aliens living in a radically sped-up dimension of time arrive on Earth and, unable to detect any movement in humans, comes to the logical conclusions that we are inert material, with which they may do as they please. The aliens proceed ruthlessly to exploit us. Ain't that some shit? That's wild. So when you think about that, an alien species that comes to Earth, they live in a radically sped-up dimension of time, and basically we're not moving in their perception of time so they think we're inert objects and we're just like part of the furniture of the world or we're the aliens and that plants are the humans and that analogy and plants are living in a wider spectrum of time and we live in a very in a much faster spectrum of time so we perceive plants as being you know kind of inanimate objects you know what i mean Yes, I think you explained that pretty well. Like, <laughs> good because the, the long <laughs> plant essentially plants have a great long game, and yep. you'd better have some patience if you want to understand what a plant is up to. Because, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, um, it's crazy. Our idea of time, it, it like everything a plant does is so slow compared to how a human is. Like, oh, human beings are all about instant everything right now, and like. I I understand what you're saying. At least I thought I did. And it's almost like the comparison of like us to a microbe is like our experience of time is bound to be so different because it's all relative. I think that that's something that's going to be a big part of like these next couple of years is like, like people are expecting to learn that 
there's life on Mars or like microbial life. And I don't think it's going to be like that. I think they're going to say that life is everywhere and that these things are like all an ecosystem with each other. Just the way our cells and our body work together, even though like we have our own mind with free will and all like, I think that the whole planet and the, everything like works together in these weird strange ways a, a part of what we're observing is something that exists in that vast spectrum maybe its relationship with time is much different than ours uh, here's a couple of more recent experiments they did indeed many of the most impressive capabilities of plants can be traced to their unique existential predicament as being rooted to the ground and therefore unable to pick up and move when they need something or when conditions turn unfavorable. A highly developed sensory apparatus is required to locate food and identify threats. Plants have evolved between 15 and 20 distinct senses, including analogs of R5, smell and taste. They sense and respond to chemicals in the air or on their bodies. Uh, they have sight. They react differently to various wavelengths of light as well as to shadows. Uh, they have touch. A vine or a root knows when it encounters a solid object. And it has been discovered sound. In a recent experiment, a chemical ecologist at the University of Missouri found that when she played a recording of a caterpillar chomping a leaf for a plant that hadn't been touched, the sound primed the plant's genetic machinery to produce defense chemicals. Another experiment found that plant roots would seek out buried pipe through which water was flowing even if the exterior of the pipe was dry, which suggested that plants somehow hear the sound of flowing water. That's crazy. I think that's true. Yeah. I know people that talk to their plants. My my wife does, dude. She she always talks to her plants. And I think they listen. I, I do I'm too. not gonna lie, because uh those people are usually good vibes. Yeah, they <laughs> I know. I'm just maybe I'm talking out my ass, but like I'm being serious. Every person that seriously does talk to their plants is always very considerate and kind and uh you know what i'm saying like caring people maybe i'm generalizing but like i think there's something to really showing respect even the native americans are big on that i would hear traditions in like utah for native americans and people i forget who exactly was explaining it but they were saying that the natives recommended that he stop throwing garbage on the ground and stop spitting on the ground and like disrespecting the earth and start just like talking to the planet. And he said that in return, you will like reap the benefits in like many different ways. Maybe it's because you're like gifted with wisdom now. Maybe it's not even necessarily anything like magical. It's just something that like you're feeling better about. People claim that like, their luck does improve. And I know all that stuff is anecdotal, but like this is something John Keel was big on. And he he insisted that since the mid 1800s and like we really began getting industrialized, he, that we're just destroying the earth's natural systems. But he kind of phrased it as if the earth was infested with humans. We're in the middle of the food chain, whatever that means. So the author goes on. Perhaps the cleverest instance of plant signaling involves two insect species, the first in the role of the pest and the second as its exterminator. Several species, including corn and lima beans, emit a chemical distress call when attacked by caterpillars. Parasitic wasps, some distance away, lock in on that scent, follow it to the afflicted plant, 
and proceed to slowly destroy the caterpillars. Scientists call these insects plant bodyguards. It's the happening. <laughs> <laughs> it just shows you like that there's things happening on like meta levels yeah. that we don't even notice. I still thought your example of plants in time, <laughs> I thought that was a good example. Yeah, that's crazy to think about. I did find this uh, Keel clip where he's talking about the earth being infested. Go for it. He says, as the pace of the planetary crisis quickens, the watchers increase their mysterious surveillance. The night skies are filled more often with thousands of cosmic eyes. More and more people are stopped on lonely roads by strange forces which reprogram their minds as easily as we alter and reprogram computer tapes. Humans are tagged just as we tag wild animals to watch their migratory movements and chart their habits. The UFOs do not seem to be part of some distant intergalactic system at all, but are closely related to both mankind and the Earth itself. In its early time, the Earth may have needed man. But now we have become a plague threatening the entire organism. The signs and wonders of our present day may be the subtle beginnings of global convulsions to some convulsions that will spring from the planet's urge for self-preservation and ultimately destroy us. The earth is not inhabited. It is infested. That's a uh, dark one. <laughs> that makes sense. I, I like that idea a lot. Um, Keel was on the board of this guy, Ivan Sanderson's foundation. And Ivan Sanderson was a zoologist and a biologist. And he caught a lot of critique because later in his life, he would write about the Yeti and like Bigfoot and cryptozoology type topics. But like Ivan Sanderson is a really cool guy to read his work and read his books of as long as you're willing to have like an open mind about it. But like Keel really liked sanderson's explanation that he did his best to keep things scientific sanderson was big on the idea that the earth was like a living organism and i thought that that was brilliant because when you look at a lot of ufo encounters they seem to be well tailored to the contactee that cat and mouse game of party a and party b i thought that that was really reflective of a system, just like the white blood cells in our immune system of our body, acting to preserve the larger system, even though we're not even consciously sending them to fight for us on our behalf. You know what I mean? It's just like an automatic function of our system and our body. And uh, what if a lot of UFO encounters is like, if our planet is a living organism, what if those UFOs people are encountering saying, please stop annihilating our forests. Please stop dropping nuclear bombs. What if that is like a white blood cell tailoring itself to the particular problems culturally and consciously of the individuals infecting it? People, the way people think about a lot of these experiences, there's always exceptions. So like, I'm not saying that's what all encounters are. But I think that that's a very interesting way to think about what UFOs are in uh, terms of like thinking like a, a layer above. Yeah, I remember there was a guy, his name is Patrick Jackson, I guess. But he was saying like orbs are like part of the immune system of the planet. I don't know. I, I don't know if I believe that. But I think it's interesting to think about the UFOs they were seeing off the East Coast, off Virginia, and their training grounds were moving in a uh, levee flight pattern, which is... You know, a lot of insects use that kind of pattern and it 
yeah, a certain like path that they take. And it's where a lot of, um, a lot of different animals do that just instinctually. And Gary Nolan pointed this out, but T cells in the immune system go in the exact same levy flight pattern that these UFOs off the coast of Virginia were using. So I found that correlation kind of be interesting. Damn. And also, if you think about it, 80% of the biomass on the planet is plants. If anyone's the uh, virus, it's, uh, it's us. Yeah, I think fungi too has a huge, huge percentage of biomass. At all levels, the microscopic is in control. Oh, yeah. Like even sure. in our own bodies, in our gut, large scale on our planet, I feel like the microorganisms are in control. Even in the oceans, the microscopic seems to dominate in a lot of ways like that like people just take for granted. One of the interesting things, I don't want to go on too many tangents, but like one of the interesting things about the ocean is a lot of, it, most of our planet's oxygen is produced in the ocean. A lot of these small microscopic processes, people just assume like it's all just trees in the rainforest. It's much more to it than that. It's a big reason why it's just so disappointing that our ox that our oceans are becoming so toxic. Pretty much all I'm trying to say. So I'll just read the last part of this that I wanted to touch on. But yeah, the guy goes on. Perhaps the most troublesome and troubling word of all in thinking about plants is consciousness. If consciousness is defined as inward awareness of oneself experiencing reality, uh, the feeling of what happens, in the words of neuroscientist Antonio Damasio then we can probably safely conclude that plants don't possess it. But if we define the term simply as the state of being awake and aware of one's environment online, as the neuroscientists say, then plants may qualify as conscious beings. The being knows exactly what is in the environment around it. We don't know how, but this is one of the features of consciousness. You know your position in the world. A stone does not. In support of their contention that plants are conscious of their environment, uh, Mancuso and Beluska point out that plants can be rendered unconscious by the same anesthetics that can put animals out. Drugs can induce in plants an unresponsive state resembling sleep. A snoozing Venus flytrap won't notice an insect crossing its threshold. What's more, when plants are injured or stressed, they produce a chemical, ethylene, that works as an anesthetic on animals. When I learned this startling fact, I asked if he meant to suggest that plants could feel pain. If plants are conscious, then yes, they should feel pain. If you don't feel pain, you ignore danger and you don't survive. Pain is adaptive. I must have shown some alarm. That's a scary idea. Uh, Slayman went on to acknowledge that intelligent behavior could perfectly well develop without such a nerve center or headquarters or director or brain, whatever you want to call it. Instead of a brain, think network. It seems to be that many higher organisms are internally networked in such a way that local changes such as the way that roots respond to a water gradient, cause very local responses which benefit the entire organism. Seen that way, the outlook of Mancuso and Trawavas is pretty much in line with my understanding of biochemical biological networks. He pointed out that while it is an understandable human prejudice to favor the nerve center model, we also have a second autonomic nervous system governing our digestive processes, which operates most of the time without instructions from the higher up. Brains are just one of nature's ways of getting complex jobs done for dealing intelligently with the challenges presented by the environment, but they are not the only way. Yes, I would argue that intelligent behavior is a property of life. Teeming with life. 
<laughs> Ain't that the way to put it? <laughs> the swarm. It seems like, um, yeah, it's an emergent property of certain networks, consciousness, like, and there's different kinds. And uh, try not to think about plants being in pain, though. <laughs> vegetarians are going to have a hard time with that. <laughs> My wife's a vegetarian, and I'm never going to tell her that. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, And she talks to her plants. It would be devastating. <laughs> I'm going to tell her not to listen to this one. It's pretty crazy to think about. I hope that changes the way some people like think about when they see like something they can't explain. I think people go about it like it all has to do with them specifically. Like it has a very special meaning to them specifically. And I don't want to take away from anyone's experience and say it wasn't as special as they thought it was or anything like that. I just think that like human beings have a habit of making things very like squarely about them. The points you were bringing up today make it like very much that we're just a part of a bigger system. I like those types of theories. So I hope people keep churning those out. Yeah, it's the ego, I think. And that maybe that's part of our survival. Oh, it has to be a huge part of it. Yeah. Speaking of ego, I was thinking about this, um, you know, in American cosmics, particularly, uh, they talk about downloads like Gary Nolan and Tim Taylor they talk about like sudden moments of intuition where they they have an idea and then you know they fall asleep and then it snowballs into like something they can make tangible happen in the world like a like a biotech idea or something like that that's how they are so successful in a way and that's pretty much what they're saying valet and a lot of people have talked about how these ufo crashes are gifts and delong says you know it's essentially to test who is the strongest. Like we give these sides different technologies who can reverse engineer it quickly, more quickly who can make like worse weapons or more destructive technologies. So I was kind of wondering if uh, the downloads are kind of a similar test. Is the ego going to use it for good or bad? Here's an idea for technology instead of, you know, the materials. And um, like who's going to be stronger maybe with these ideas? I think that should do it for this episode. Uh, that was fun. I really like that one. You got any last words? <laughs> um, uh, not in particular. I would say uh, just as a fan of reading about this type of stuff and listening to podcasts and stuff, the last Diana Pasolka, Joe Rogan, I think people should really listen to and enjoy. And I think she did a great job and sounded very intelligent. And that's kind of what I've been on. And uh, Peter Lavenda on Whitley Strieber's podcast. Yeah, was that cool. was another good interview. So that's kind of what I've been on this week in terms of like consumption. And uh, Matt Ford did a great job on his show too. Yeah. Covering the Wikipedia stuff. So Matt's tip of the great. hat to those folks. Rob Heatherly, awesome job. As for me, I uh, wrote an article. I'll make it free, I guess, this week on MK Ultra funding the funding of a wing in the Georgetown hospital to uh, run like radiation experiments that like I had never heard about before. But um, essentially MKUltra was funneling money through uh, a foundation by the head of the Georgetown hospital. Well, I'm not going to tweet it because my account's deactivated right now for several reasons, but hopefully I'll be back soon. I'm on threads if you want to still follow me for now uh yeah that's where i'm at so yeah thanks for listening in and we'll see you all next week thanks guys 